Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sisters is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at cohortsisters.com. Thanks for joining us today on the Cohort Sisters podcast. I'm speaking with Dr. Carlotta Berry, a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Rose-Hulman Institute of Technology, and the 2021 to 2024 Dr. Lawrence J. Giocoletto Endowed Chair for Electrical and Computer Engineering. Dr. Berry, who goes by Norse Deminist Online, is a leading scholar in robotics and was one of the co-founders of Black in Engineering and Black in Robotics, which both work to bring awareness to systemic racism and advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in STEM. In this episode, Dr. Berry talks about how she intentionally pursued a PhD in order to become a teacher, why she chose to pursue a master's degree before going into a doctoral program, how she supplemented her doctoral stipend with side gigs, and the importance of using your voice and position to advocate for change despite the potential repercussions. Let's get into our conversation. Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, Dr. Carlotta Berry. Very excited to have you here. You were just talking about how you just returned from sabbatical. So just start there. What were some of the things that you were able to do while you were on sabbatical? So the craziest thing about the sabbatical and the thing I'm most grateful for was it was during the pandemic and that was totally (laughs) unplanned. At my school, you have to start applying for sabbatical about a year before you take it. So some guy just dropped in my heart in summer of 2019. You really should apply for sabbatical. No, you know, the the pandemic and all of that wasn't even on the radar or anything. And then I got approved to go on sabbatical in January of 2020. And it was supposed to start in June. And then in March, the world shut down. And so all of a sudden, classes went online. We had to go home. My original sabbatical was going to be to work as an automation engineer for a pharmaceutical company and upgrade some of my controls and robotics experience, which had become pretty dated since I had been out of industry for about 15 to 20 years. So as soon as we went to teaching online, I started working for the company. And that was supposed to be all I was doing during sabbatical was going there, learning about new technologies and identifying ways to bring that back into the classroom. Because we all know that students think that professors don't do, that's why they teach. And so (laughs) one of their favorite questions is always, how does this apply to real life? You don't know real life, you're just a professor. And so I was going to use some of what I learned to improve my mobile robotics course, my human robot interaction course, design an industrial robotics course, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And then come May, the end of May, George Floyd gets killed. Christian Cooper, the bird watcher was racially profiled in Central Park. And then we know Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia was killed. And then about the second week in June, Black and the Ivory started trending on social media. And now all of a sudden the priorities for my sabbatical shifted. 
after talking to some of my colleagues, we just felt like that it was really time for Black academics in STEM and in other disciplines as well to come out from behind the shadows, come out from being hidden figures and speak out against things that are important. And this is a bit of a paradigm shift because especially in academia, everyone is is kind of a, a slave, I hate to use that word, but to tenure, to promotion, to retention, and it's all very political. And so because of that, you have to be very careful about what you say, who you offend, whether you are even on social media, So we had to make some very hard choices about what's more important, our voice speaking about things that matter to our people or being quiet because it may affect my promotion at work or my ability to have academic freedom to research or study what I want to do. So I like to say that my pandemic created two sabbaticals, the one that I proposed to my university and then the one that I actually did. And pleasing those two is what is driving me a little crazy now, (laughs) because now that I'm back at work, Black and engineering still exists. It's still a nonprofit that has to be supported. Black and robotics still exists. And it's now a, it has to be attended to. And all of that has to happen on top of all of my professoring. Yeah. Okay. So I know we like really jump. I didn't even ask you about your stuff. I didn't even ask how your day's going. So <laughs> we just really, really jumped into the question. So let me back it up for some of our listeners. Tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you're from. Let's start there or not start yeah. there. Let's, let's go there since we got right, no, right. I into totally the understand. I, I think <laughs> when you're passionate about something, mm-hmm. that's what you lead with. Yeah. And yeah. I, I just, there was a, article written about me recently and they they talked about it was one of the most read on their website and they wanted to get my reaction to it and I said my reaction is the stuff I do is not for me so that's why you know when you ask me about things like what's your day I'm here representing a whole bunch of folks that I'm dragging behind me but I can tell you a little bit about myself as well so I am a professor of electrical and computer engineering at Rose Holman Institute of Technology which is in Terre Haute Indiana It's a primarily undergraduate institution, which means we don't offer PhDs. The highest degree is a master's. And it is one of the top schools for undergraduate engineering education. And that's actually why I chose that school, because I got my PhD because I wanted to be a teacher. I did not want to be a researcher. I did not want to crank out a bunch of PhDs. I didn't want to write grants. I didn't want to do any of that. I honestly just wanted to change the face of the STEM profession in order to make it reflect the world we live in, because I always say, be the change that you seek. And that's what I did not have as an undergrad. So I'm trying to answer the call to those things. So I am from Nashville, Tennessee, and I got my undergraduate degrees at Spelman College in mathematics and at Georgia Tech in electrical engineering. And it was at Georgia Tech when I decided to get my PhD and become a professor, because I did not have any engineering professors who were women, Black, warm, friendly, or seemed all that interested in me. To their credit, Georgia Tech does now have some Black engineering faculty because they're some of my colleagues, but I didn't see any of them when I was a student there. So after graduating from Georgia Tech, my GPA was not that great. And I did have student loan debts, but this is why I say you can be what you cannot see because I wanted to be something that I did not see and that I could not understand how to translate from my GPA into a reality But I went to go work at Ford Motor Company as an automation and controls engineer. I worked on a a plant 
in a windshield factory where I programmed robots and line logic. And one thing I found is that I would spend more time mentoring the interns and talking to the college students and doing service projects in the city of Detroit, like for DAPSEP tutoring kids. And I was like, I'm not walking in my, my ministry. I'm not walking in my truth because although I'm working as an engineer, I'm finding that I keep doing all these other things. My original desire had been to be a high school math teacher. That's why I have the math degree from Spelman, because I always said that in case the engineering thing didn't work out, I have my math degree to fall back on. So that's when I started working at night and going to school during the day to get my master's in controls at Wayne State, which is in downtown Detroit. And as soon as I graduated from Wayne State, my intention had been to go to grad school and get my PhD, but I immediately got another job that I wasn't even (laughs) trying to get. That's a story for another day. But I did that for a year and was just like, eh, not me. And so I, I quit my job and then I enrolled in Vanderbilt for my PhD. And my PhD is in human robot interaction because I think it's so important that we have to always examine technology through the lens of how people interact with it, right? You know, engineers have this, this you know, maybe not well-deserved reputation of being geeks, nerdy, impersonal, all about their number crunching and all of that. And that's to our detriment. I think that hurts us when we try to diversify the field because that doesn't look fun and attractive to children or even some adults. So I try to show that I can use those technical things and still be fun and engaging and connect with people so that they want to come join me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How did you get interested in robotics? Take us back to baby Carlotta. Were you the kind of kid who was tinkering with toys and pulling them apart and putting them back together? How did you even get interested in STEM and engineering and and robotics eventually? So I was actually late to the game. Um, That's another thing that I talk about a lot is breaking the mold. So so we have to break that mold of our vision of what a potential future engineer looks like. I have colleagues who talk about how their dad would take car engines and TVs apart in the garage with them and put them back together. I was none of that. So my mom was a, a kindergarten teacher for 30 years. And what I like to do is play with my Barbies. I play with my Barbies. I play with my Barbie dream house. I think the one harbinger that I was probably going to be an engineer is I love Legos. I love Lincoln Logs. I love taking things apart and putting them back together. But I love that just as much as I loved holding school for my Barbies, assigning their homework and grading it and, (laughs) and doing all of those things as well. So I think the transition started to happen around fifth or sixth grade when I had to do a science fair project and my mom had no clue. I had no clue. And a friend introduced us to one where use a light bulb and a battery to to turn a a wire to turn on a bulb. And I was like, well, this is kind of cool, but I still only dabbled. So I ended up going to a magnet school. And that was after a principal told my mom, I think she's wasting her potential here. You need to put her somewhere that actually stimulates her a little bit more. And it was in that high school, I did a program called Inroads, which is a program for um, students to get them professionally developed to go to corporate America. And as somebody said, with your math and science skills, you should consider engineering. And I was like, I don't know what an engineer is. I want to be a high school math teacher. Not sure that's (laughs) going to work for me. So it was during that research at the library that I was like, "Uh, okay, that may work. The robotics came later. That actually came because as an engineering student, I thought 
a lot of what I learned was so cool, including the robotics, but the professors did not market it to me as cool, right? <laughs> so even though I took a robotics class, only the grad students got to touch the robot. The undergrads had to stand mm. behind a, a shield and watch their code run and be like, yay. But I'm like, we didn't get to touch anything. And so I was just always like, if I ever become a professor, I'm going to make sure everybody gets to touch the robot. Everybody gets the right <laughs> code. Everybody gets to break stuff and put it back together <laughs> because that's where the real learning happens. And so robotics for me became a, a, a tool because it's a great way to connect with people, right? So it's my research, but it's also my service. And I also use it for teaching because mm-hmm. robotics is great for those multidisciplinary connections, mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, computer scientists, software engineers, psychologists, sociologists, they all do work in robotics. It depends on what you're doing with the robot. That's the cool thing about it. Even more than the fact it's a robot is that people from so many different backgrounds can come together to do things related to robotics. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My only kind of foray into robotics that I thought about for probably 35 seconds was after I watched the movie iRobot. I was like, I want to invent a robot that does the dishes for me. That's like not a dishwasher or someone that like would actually go to the dishes and wash them because I was responsible for all the dishes in my household. <laughs> and that was like my one dream in life for those three minutes <laughs> that I yeah. needed a robot to do the dishes because I was tired of the dishes. Absolutely. <laughs> I will say some of the most common requests that we get from people when you do share your work um, is kids do my homework. <laughs> Moms do the housework. Dads mm-hmm. maybe do the lawn, you know, cut the grass, okay. or whatever. Yeah. Housework, homework, cleaning, mm-hmm. dishes, all of that. That's all people want. They want Rosie yep. from Jetson. They ain't yep. worried about none of that other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. But there's some really cool um, new applications with, with robots. And we are now fully on like the robot vacuum train. And I like don't understand how I vacuumed before those things. <laughs> so really, really love, <laughs> right. love those things. So let's talk about the, you know, getting the doctoral degree. So you kind of, I want to get this right. You kind of mentioned a degree from Spelman, a degree from Georgia Tech, a degree from Wayne State, and then Vanderbilt. So why the multiple master's degrees before the PhD? Um, what was your thought process kind of going into the PhD program? And, and how were you thinking about your previous education as either preparatory or maybe not adequately preparatory enough? And then maybe did that encourage you to get that second master's before going for your PhD? Absolutely. So Spelman and Georgia Tech were actually both bachelor's degrees. They have a, a program. It's called a three-two dual degree program where you get two degrees in five years. And it has now grown because it has been so successful that through the existence of this program, schools like um, University of Michigan, Georgia Tech, RPI are now graduating some of the most Black engineers in the country. I think sometimes they are neck and neck with like HBCUs like North Carolina A&T, which also graduate um, some of the most Black engineers. And it is because that HBCU experience, it builds that foundation that allows you to go to engineering school and be able to be successful. I like to tell people that if there had been no Spelman, I would not have graduated from Georgia Tech because it was like night and day. I did go from a very nurturing and supportive environment where I had teachers and classmates who were very invested in my success, very nurturing, very encouraging. 
to engineering school, which can almost hit you right between your eyes. Until I learned the proper way to identify my resources and navigate through that, I struggled a lot in engineering school. So that is my vision and hope for the dual degree program. In fact, one of the things I'm doing right now is I'm holding workshops for students who are potential dual degree students at HBCUs who will eventually transition to PWIs so that they can can see what that looks like. So that was the main thing. Originally, my only goal was to get an engineering degree, go on about my life and be happy and then maybe retire someday and teach high school math. It was that time at Georgia Tech that let me know I wanted to do more. And I did not see a way for me to accomplish that without getting my PhD. Like I said, my PhD was because I wanted to teach university level engineering. And that was a means to an end. To get there, I had to do that master's first. And that is because I honestly don't think I would have gotten into a PhD program directly from undergrad. I do help some of my students now write recommendation letters, but you gotta be a pretty stellar student to do straight PhD. Otherwise you gotta go through master's. And I think I mentioned to you that until I learned how to do the resources at Georgia Tech, I failed a couple of classes. I had some C's. It was not a pretty journey for me at all. And I don't think I would have been able to get into a PhD program with my 2.5 from Georgia Tech. So getting that master's, uh, that practical master's at Wayne State allowed me to learn how to do graduate school, how to study, how to write a thesis, how to do research. And I graduated from Wayne State with a 4.0. So now I have the 4.0, I have the strong Mm -hmm. GRE scores. So Mm -hmm. that's now what a university sees when I apply for my PhD, as opposed to me walking out of Georgia Tech limping and bleeding, right? (laughs) I talk about, you know, surviving rather than thriving at Georgia Tech Mm -hmm. and then going to somebody like, I want my PhD. They would have probably laughed me out the door. Yeah. Uh, One of my biggest challenges is I like to say I'm first generation PhD, not first generation college because my mom has a a college degree, but because she wasn't very familiar with this journey, I didn't always do it exactly right. Like I didn't know about the gym program and that there were programs for black and minoritized and marginalized students to get PhDs and graduate degrees. I Spelman, I graduated with student loan debt because I didn't know that there were STEM scholars and Y scholars and all these programs for black women who wanted to be engineers. So I didn't do everything right. And so one reason why I do what I do is I want to lay that pathway to be easier for those who come behind me. It was more of an obstacle course for me, you know, with the arrows and the darts and the electrified fence. But I made it and I'm Mm -hmm. here, but I don't want others to go through that. But that was really my whole thing at at Vanderbilt. And and I tell students, be authentic and true to who you are. My statement of purpose when I applied to Vanderbilt, as I told them, I want to be an educator. I want to teach engineering and I want to diversify STEM. I know that the path to do that is being in a research lab, writing a thesis, a PhD dissertation. I'm willing to do all of that, but I just want to make it very clear. When I graduated from Vanderbilt, I only applied to HBCUs and teaching schools. I did not apply to R1s because that's not who I am and that's not what I want to do. You know, I've already had miserable jobs where I cried going Mm. to work. So I knew what I was going to do was going to be something that made me happy. And so I just think it's important to know yourself, write the vision, make it plain, 
mm-hmm. and figure out how to get there. So that's why yeah. I got my PhD. And that's not the only path. You know, there's a lot of people who get their PhD and go to government labs, research labs, start their own business, become entrepreneurs. But you have to do what's most authentic to yourself. Yeah, that's actually really interesting advice because the last person who I was speaking to on the podcast, we were talking about, you know, the game you have to play, like the academic game where in some instances, like you kind of have to say like, oh, I actually, I would love to do research because that's what they expect of you. But you're kind of advising that, you know, you should just be straight up about the fact that you have no interest in, in having a primarily like research driven profession that you want to teach and that worked out for you. So I'm glad that you've brought that different perspective because I, even myself, like I, I research was never like that super interesting to me. I've been always more interested in teaching and service, but I definitely felt like I had to say that I wanted to do research in order for professors to want to invest in me. And obviously like, because I went to, because I was so young and so naive when I went to grad school, I didn't have the confidence and I didn't have even like the knowledge of what an academic life could look like to know that there were other options. So some of those things also came into play for me personally, but I just, I really appreciate that advice because literally yesterday I was just talking to someone else about, you know, the, the game of like, you know, just tell them this so that they can get you through and then, you, you know, do whatever you want afterwards. But there is a lot of value in just being super upfront and authentic with it um, with your goals and with your plans after your PhD. And if you and you were authentic from the very beginning. So obviously a program who wasn't interested in supporting a student like you wouldn't have accepted you because you were authentic in your statement of purpose. You were able to find a program that knew from jump what you were about and were able to and willing to support you in that venture. So right. I, and I, I, don't, want, I, I don't want to give you a, a bad impression. I, I do do research because, you know, to get tenure, I had to to get full professor. I had to. But, you know, I call it being a nowhere stimulus. That's the word I use for it, where it's this intersectional nature of my service, my teaching and my research at my school. We call it professional development. So I have found a way to be authentic in doing that so that my research involves my undergraduate students. My research does involve some service to the community. I just got an endowed chair. And in my proposal, I put in there that it's going to be the intersection and the outreach I do for Black and engineering and Black and robotics. My students who are going to do research for me are going to help me design some of these workshops and things that we are going to use to give back to the community. And they're going to help me to design some of these things that we then will use to teach these multidisciplinary students. So I don't want you to think I don't do that type of work. I just do it in a way that feels authentic to me. I think as Black people in STEM, we do do a lot of code switching. We have to, unfortunately to move in these professional places. But I now think I have gotten to the point in my old age where I've had miserable jobs, where I had to sit up in there and lie to somebody's face about my value system and have them turn their nose up. No, I don't care because (laughs) I have to be able to wake up and look at myself in the mirror. I'll give you an example. When I worked at Ford Motor Company, I think I mentioned to you how I spent a lot of time mentoring the college students and the high school students and my boss came to me and he said, you're spending too much time with, and mind you, they were the only black people. Most of my colleagues were white <laughs> and all of the interns were black. And he said, you're spending too much time with the students. And I was like, I thought you told me to mentor them. They were like, yes, but you're spending too much time. To them. I'm like, okay, I won't do that anymore. And then a colleague had said something to me one day about my job. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing this because I want to learn some technical things just to help prepare me because I'm eventually going to go back to school and get my PhD and become a professor. And my evaluation from my boss that next quarter said, I'm not sure why she's here when she just wants to be a school teacher. A school teacher. 
Right. Because oh, they, they, okay. so basically they had taken everything I said out of context at the time I was yeah. 24, 25 years old. So I'm mm-hmm. devastated. And I'm like, God, should I have lied? I thought being honest was important. I'm saying I want to be here to build up my technical skills. And at that point, I had to start thinking, if they can't respect my value system and the fact that there are black and brown students walking around here who I'm trying to help and groom to be better engineers, or that I'm telling you I want to be the best engineer I can so that I can then go back and give to the future generations, this is not the place for me. And that's when I I started to have to say, Sometimes you don't tell people what they want to hear. It's not appropriate because then they start treating you a certain way because, you know, at 24, yeah, I was devastated that they would say that. But then I had to be like, no, this I just shouldn't be here. It's mm-hmm. not I should have lied and said, no, I want to I want to work here forever because that's what they wanted me to say. Mm-hmm. In fact, mm-hmm. they were like, don't you want to be a manager in the company one day? No, no, I don't. So I got critiqued <laughs> for that. She has no aspirations to move up in the company. No, because I don't plan on being here in the next five years. I got other goals. <laughs> and it ain't to manage a whole bunch of engineers. And there's no 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 shade for people who want mm-hmm. to do that. But you got to know yourself. And you have to know what is important to you. And not doing that is going to have you walking through life, satisfying somebody else for that external validation and being miserable. And that's just not going to work. Right, right. I love, I mean, I think some of this does come with age and wisdom and and maturity because as you said, like, you know, when you were, you were upset at the time when you were younger and now it's like, you know, these things kind of roll off your back. So, you know, I think for some of our younger listeners who Mm -hmm. feel like, well, you know, I don't have the confidence yet to, to say that it's okay. It comes with with time. It comes with time. This is what I tell my students. Sometimes, and I I tell myself this as well, sometimes you have to fake it till you make it, you know, imposter syndrome is real. I still have it to this day, but sometimes you got to walk in and own that space until you feel it, you you know, speak those things that be not as though they were, and you will get there. You will. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Let's talk a little bit about your time in your doctoral program. Um, What were some of the highlights of your time at Vanderbilt in your doctoral program? So. I loved it. I loved it, loved it so much. And I know everyone did not have a happy PhD experience and mine was not always the best. It took me six years to get my PhD and that is after having my master's. So that's doggone long. And part of the challenge, and I, this is some other advice I give students is try to come with some idea about what you want to do. All I knew was robotics and controls was my zhush. And I want my PhD because I want to teach. But beyond that, I had no idea. (laughs) So because I had no idea, my advisor was perfectly happy to let me just, you know, work on his grants, work on his slides, work on his papers. He knew (laughs) I wanted to be a teacher, you know, let him travel and give talks and let me teach his class. So, you know, because there are a lot of grad students who don't want to teach and you don't want them in a classroom jacking up the undergrad (laughs) because I wanted to he, had, he was perfectly happy to let me teach his classes while he went out of town. But what that ended up doing is that means that was three or four years. I was in my Ph.D. program living my best life, but also not making any progress <laughs> towards getting done. I think one of the other things that was a challenge for me is because I had worked as an engineer for three years. I had life and income as a working mm-hmm. individual. So going Mm -hmm. back to living off of PhD stipend and housing and all that was not going to work for me. 
I had money saved up, you know, because working as a controls engineer for Ford and for Detroit Edison was relatively lucrative. So I'm in my PhD program, but I'm still taking cruises with my girlfriends because they're working engineers. So I'm doing all of that. And so what finally got me to buckle down was, oh, baby, it's been three years. I don't even have no time to do it, right? So my advisor recruited another junior faculty member to be my co-advisor. So I have two PhD advisors. And that became a blessing and a curse because I was one of his last PhDs and I was going to be her first PhD um, PhD Mm -hmm. student. So she had a lot to prove writing on my back. And because of that, I had to please two masters. And it's really hard to do that. But I loved learning about robotics. My research lab was relatively popular at the time. And we'd get interviewed by news stations. We'd have kids come through and we'd give tours to the kiddos. And it was just really great. I love that my research lab was international. One of my advisors was Japanese. A lot of my classmates were from China and Turkey and lots of places. So that multicultural connection was wonderful. I I was actually the second Black woman to get her PhD in electrical engineering from Vanderbilt. The third Black woman was in the lab with me at the same time, and the first Black man was also. So that was a big deal to have three Black PhD students at once. And so it it was just really great. I I loved it. I I love learning. Like I said, I I was an aspiring teacher before I was anything else. I love school. I love learning. That's the thing I try to give to my daughter. Um, No matter what you be, I don't want you to ever get tired of Mm -hmm. learning more and Mm -hmm. getting up every day to learn one new thing. So I know that it's not, it's not easy for everyone. Everyone does not have supportive advisors. My advisor was strict. He was stern, but he was not unsupportive. And I think that's the difference when you, you look on Twitter and you hear a lot of grad students talking about all the miserable things they're going through. I honestly did not have that. That's not to say I did not butt heads, especially with my female advisor, because her and I are the same age mm-hmm. <laughs> and she was my advisor, but it was it was doable. It was achievable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's another reason why I do what I do, because it should not be a miserable journey right. for you to go and do something that you aspire to be. Yeah, 100% agree. And so what were you talked about the highlights? What were some of your biggest challenges? I think for me, even after getting a master's and writing a master's thesis, not totally understanding what it means to come up with something that's never been done before and being able to frame a research question, frame an experimental design, being able to execute that and writing. I think my um, female advisor and I, we butted heads the most over my writing. She didn't like the way I wrote. She didn't like the way I described things, the way I did a literature review. So her and I went back so much that by the time she was happy and I had added all the content, I have a 300 page PhD dissertation, which is huge in the PhD dissertation. Yes. World. And Even, especially in your field. Right. In I also had crazy. three to six years to get that joker <laughs> written. So that was the biggest challenge is finally nailing down a topic. Figuring out how to make two people happy, knowing that she had to prove herself on me as her first PhD, she was going to ride me like a racehorse. And she did. And she was a redhead from New York. So it was sometimes (laughs) a little brutal, but 
I think that was the biggest challenge. I think building community, having that support network, which people can now build through social media. You don't have to, back when I was in school, figure it out and cobble it through with a few people in your lab. But knowing how to do that, using undergraduate, I tell my undergraduate students, start learning how to do research now. Start learning how to do technical communication now, how to write papers, how to do presentations, how to critically think when you're reading a research paper, how to evaluate the argument. Did they prove it? Did they disprove it? Did they punt on it? How was their experimental design? You don't have to wait till you get to a PhD program to figure some of that out. I did it all in my PhD program. So don't start behind the eight ball like me, hit the ground running. Yeah, that's such good advice. And it's also, I think, up to professors to encourage their students to think critically. Something that I do in my class now is that I, every once in a while, have them pick apart a reading. And the first day we did it, they were so confused. (laughs) They were just like, wait, but what do you mean? Like, does their argument make sense? Like, does the argument make sense? Like, do they back it up? And it's such a foreign way of thinking because it is really about analysis. And that's not how most undergraduates are taught. But that is, if we want people, that's, that's the difference between undergraduate and graduate learning. All of a sudden, you're not just reading for the sake of answering questions on a test, you're you're reading to form your own opinions and to formulate questions. So very, very different. Okay. I do want to quickly touch on what you, what you said about saving money while you were working so that you wouldn't have to continue existing on a strict PhD stipend when you were in your program. How did you know that that was something that you should be doing, especially if you didn't have kind of exposure to this academic world? I think that that's something that catches people off guard sometimes is like how little PhD stipends are, especially if they've been working before. And then they now go to making half or a quarter of what they used to make in in the real world. And they, they now kind of like really struggle to balance their finances with a PhD stipend. So how did you know that you should be saving and how did you kind of navigate the lower PhD stipend based on what you were making before? It started with my master's. So I had, I had decided to quit Ford because there was a grant that my advisor, my master's advisor had gotten, but it could only go to a black student. And that stipend, he had gotten like an NSF grant to mentor a, a black student. And so I was doing it and I was working and I was finding I was falling asleep in class because I was working at night. And so I had gone to him and said, I'm going to quit. I got to go to school. I'm, I'm, I, I had every intention of returning to Ford when I quit. So I actually took a leave. And so after I quit and I was living off the stipend, I was like, this is chicken feed. <laughs> and so I had gone to the dean of engineering at the time And I had asked, is there some way to get me some more money? Because now that I'm not working and I'm only living off what you're paying me, it's kind of pitiful. It's a pittance. And he said to me, you don't have a good perspective of how much grad students make. He said, actually, because you got that NSF grant, you're making double what the other grad students are making because yours is supplemented through that grant. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. And he was like, no, that's what grad students make. So it was during that time that I started supplementing and saving because I was like, if I get my PhD and I have to live off a half of what I'm getting now, that ain't gonna work. So (laughs) that's when I started doing things like I would tutor on the side. I I was a self-taught braider. I was braiding on the side. And I did a lot of that, even all the way through my PhD program, I would braid some of the other grad students hair, some of the professors hair, some of the guys on the basketball team, I'd braid their hair. 
I was tutoring basketball players and uh, members of the athletic department. I was also a paid tutor for a high school program, kind of like Sylvan Learning Center. But I supplemented, but I did things that did not require a lot of times and things that were pretty closely aligned with what I did anyway, you know, you know, teaching somebody math was was not a big deal to me. And actually, towards the end of my PhD program, I even did one semester as a high school teacher at an alternative school. But I, I learned from that master's conversation with that dean that um, he was like, I ain't giving you no more money. Get out of my office. You make more than any of the other grad students. And I was like, ooh, do I? So that's when I was like, I got to start saving because this, yeah. this is ridiculous. But Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay. Let us now turn to the work that you do with Noir Seminist. Would love to, for you to share with us, like what made you start it? What was the inspiration behind the name? And just give us a little snippet. If someone somehow hasn't heard of your work before of what you do (laughs) through that service. So, so what happened is while I was on sabbatical and I, I told you, we talked about black and engineering and black and robotics. One thing my colleague, Dr. Monica Cox had always said is that academics have got to learn to use social media to be more intentional about amplifying our work. If we're going to be the thought leaders that are going to change the world, we have to learn how to connect with people outside of those ivory towers. We're not going to be able to continue doing it only at our conferences, at our research conferences, in our research labs, in our government, in our journals. If I want to say that my ultimate mission is to diversify STEM, I got to go in those streets and get them. So as I kept thinking about how to do that, I realized that Whenever I would post anything about my technical work, I would get more engagement. Like if I talked about robotics or if I talked about engineering or if I talked about things I did as a professor, people really seem to gravitate to that. And I didn't really know how to do social media. It wasn't a thing like a lot of professors. And the main reason I came up with Nowhere Seminist originally is because people would ask me things about a tweet. And I could never find the doggone thing. So I came up with, if I can make a hashtag that's something that's nothing else, I can always quickly find my things, right? So that's where it came up. I wanted a word that represented who I was, but also something that if I ever type it, whether in Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, wherever, it would always be my stuff. So I felt like I am a STEMinist. I, I do promote STEM to women. That's really big with me. I have a scholarship program that really has a goal of promoting STEM to women. But I also, you know, I, I, I'm rooting for everybody Black, as Issa says, right? <laughs> I'm all about getting more Black and Brown students into it. And so I was like, I don't like Black STEMinists. And then STEM Noir, which is actually an organization, really kind of resonated with me. And I was like, well, I feel like I'm a Black STEMinist. Nowhere stimulus. So that's where it came from. It's about not only defining me as a black woman in STEM, but also so it's who I am and what I do. And I think it's all encapsulated into that one term. But that's how I came up with it. And then the reason why it became a business is because while on sabbatical and becoming more active on social media, I quickly discovered that I went from being asked to do podcasts, give presentations, give workshops twice a year to I was getting weekly emails. And the majority of that stuff was, can you do it for free? Okay. We all know that Black women and Black people do more service and more free work than anyone else. And I did not have any problem doing it. Like I said, I probably do more service on my campus than anybody else. 
And it don't count for diddly squat when you go up for tenure and promotion. And it got to be to the point where I had to start making some choices because I was getting burnout and I cannot give everything mm-hmm. away from free. I give mm-hmm. a lot away for free on social media, but I can't give it all mm-hmm. away. Sometimes yeah. you need to pay me, pay black people for their labors. Yes. So because of that, I got a speaking agent. I started a business. I It's a for-profit business because somebody's like, oh, you should make it into a nonprofit. No, 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 no. We got black and engineering and black and robotics for our nonprofits. And I do do free stuff for them all the time because those are my mm-hmm. babies. Yeah. But you're going to have to pay me. And so now I have a way of evaluating when people say, can you come speak? Well, what is it? And, and one of the big ones is if you have a conference and you're charging people to attend your conference, don't ask me to come speak for free. That's, Absolutely. that's offensive. But that's why I started the business, because I did want to have an authentic way to connect with young people, young and old people from nine to ninety nine and use robotics to diversify, normalize STEM. But I also wanted to have a framework for me to be paid for my labors when people want me to speak and want me to do workshops and whether they're virtual or in person. So and it's not about the money with me. I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but I was so furious a couple of days ago because somebody questioned why a workshop I was given was $25 and why they had to buy a hundred dollar kit. And I was enraged because I was like, you're getting a two hour workshop for $25. Do you honestly think I make 1250 an hour on my full-time job? And you have the nerve to question the quality of what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Right. And it just, I was just so mad. And, yeah. and so it's just kind of <laughs> like, I, it's to justify for me more why I need to charge more. Yeah. <laughs> I everything away. Because you could tell somebody it's a nickel and somebody going to complain why I want to pay. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yes. I pay Black men what we are worth um, <laughs> and don't do stuff for free. I hear you. I hear you on that so much. It's, ah, it is a never ending um, battle, yeah, especially as someone as myself too, who has a nonprofit also has um, a for-profit business. Although my for-profit business is not necessarily academic, I'm trying to make it more academic, but it's always, as you said, like people are always going to want more for less <laughs> and not Absolutely. appreciate the the value um, and not recognize that it's not just it's not even about the hourly rate. Like you're combining the hourly rate that you're spending for that two hours on top of all of the hours that you have spent accumulating the knowledge that you are going to be, to be to delivering. Exactly. Absolutely. Like, Ab- absolutely. And, you know, it's just like what I'm that that minimal amount you're paying is really a service for me. It's still service. I mean, I'm still giving it away pretty much. And for you to criticize that, it yeah. just, oh. Yeah, I hear you. I'm with you right there. <laughs> so let us wrap up. I'm curious, is there anything that you would have done differently during your academic journey, during your doctoral journey? I think like I, I alluded to earlier is be more intentional about everything I did. So one thing that I tell students that I did not do either was when you're taking your classes, your master's classes, your PhD classes, all of them are projects. Once you get to grad school, almost everything's a project. Something you mentioned earlier about Bloom's taxonomy, going from knowledge. As an undergrad, you're just regurgitating what they're telling you. As a graduate student, it's about analysis, synthesis, comprehension, critical thinking. I wish someone had told me to take advantage of every opportunity to start drilling down on what I wanted my thesis to look like. So as you're doing these classes, every class I had that was robotics related, I had a final project. 
If I had known then my PhD was on human-robot interaction, I should have been making those projects about my prototypes, about my literature review, about my beta testing, my prototype testing, and all of that, as opposed to doing a bunch of junk projects that then were throwaways, and I had to start and reinvent the wheel once I started, you know, and buckling down on my research. So I think that's my main advice is do some research, do some reading, research professor labs, research labs, figure out what resonates with you so you can start collecting some of those papers and data before you get there, right? So everything is keeping you on that because I did a lot of detours and they were fun. I loved them. They weren't getting me where I needed to be either. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Great, great, great advice. Any last words and any last words of advice you'd like to share? I think a big one with me and I, you know, a lot of my black and brown students at my current school, like, oh no, I'm done after undergrad. I like to tell them be done now, but go work and honestly self-assess. And if you think that that graduate degree will get you where you want to be in life and to be happy, please reconsider that. We really do have to get a critical mass so that we can stop having issues with, you know, microaggressions and invisible labor and hypervisibility and all of that. And that's only going to happen when we get a critical mass. But right now we're getting so many black and brown students who are graduating, who've been so damaged and um, that they're like, I don't ever want a day in school. I said the same thing when I finished my PhD. I ain't even going to take a cooking class. Don't even come near me again for nothing. And the good news is I have had over the years, maybe three or four students come back later and go, can you write me a letter? I am going to go to grad school now. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you need a break, but yeah. if it's really important to you, consider it, right? Mm-hmm. It's not easy, but the work mm-hmm. is important. Yes. And it is ultimately worth it. It's ultimately worth it. So thank you so much, Dr. Barry, for joining us on the Cohort Sisters podcast and sharing your wonderful journey and words of advice. Everyone should go follow you on social media. You're on all the, you're on, you're on everything. You're on more things than I'm on. You're on everything. So we will make sure that- I know, that right? I need to stop. <laughs> <laughs> we'll Why make sure that your handles are in, the, are in the show notes. So yes, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community, or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll catch you in next week's episode.